There's been much progress in the area of functional neurological disorders in recent times. However, in some areas, there remains a lack of information and guidance on assessment and management. One area in particular is that of functional communication, voice and swallow disorders. To address this, a group of experts in this field assembled to develop guidance on the management of functional communication, swallowing, cough and related disorders, which we published this month in the JNNP. And I'm very pleased to have two of the authors join me now to discuss this um, fantastic uh, overview and, and proposed uh, management guidelines. Um, with me is Dr. Jan Baker, who is a speech pathologist and family therapist and adjunct associate professor at Flinders University, South Australia. She's also an honorary clinical fellow at UTS in Sydney. And Dr. Laura McWherther, who's a clinical research fellow at the Centre for Clinical Brain Sciences at the University of Edinburgh, and also a consultant neuropsychiatrist practising in Edinburgh. So a very warm welcome to both of you, and uh, th thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Colin. So, Jan, I might start with you. Um, firstly, why did you want to develop these guidelines and maybe talk us through the process involved in developing um, these comprehensive recommendations? Well, you know, the idea emerged out of the recent work by the team in Edinburgh, led by uh, Professors John Stone and Alan Carson and, of course, Laura McQuirter. And they'd already been working with a fabulous group of physiotherapists and occupational therapists where they'd been developing some very good consensus guidelines for the diagnosis, assessment and management across a range of functional movement and sensory disorders. And people were really impressed with the papers put out by Nielsen and colleagues in 2016 and then Nicholson and colleagues in 2020. So I think John, Alan and Laura thought, right, we, we really ought to look at speech pathology or speech language therapy. So they asked me to join them and together we discussed the possible scope of the paper and then we together we pulled together a really great um, group of international experts who are clinically very strong as well as in their research work, working with people with functional or what were traditionally called psychogenic disorders of communication, swallowing, cough, etc. And um, although there had been much more written, really, I think, about the functional conversion reaction psychogenic voice disorders coming out of the work at the Mayo Clinic with Arnold Aronson and Professor Joe Duffy, there seemed to be less about functional speech, language, swallowing and cough. So we rather bravely thought it was important to include these in our scope of our document. After a huge review of the literature and the preparation of an indecently huge first rough draft, we then invited this international consensus team to contribute to a detailed online survey and we wanted to establish a more streamlined content of the paper, clarifying the issues that were still controversial and really looking at those aspects of management and assessment that were specific to the particular symptom groups. So we gathered comments from all of those responding to the survey and Laura and I went through them word by word and um, integrated them into the draft. And then we had a Zoom meeting to talk about this together, about our findings from the meetings and the collaboration and contributions of others. 
And then our core writing team, we produced various iterations which we sent out to the group for comment, incorporating all their feedback. We sent out the full, complete version, and then John Stone did the amazing pruning and editing for the abbreviated version. So we've got two. We've got two versions, a brief version and a full version with a lot of practical things in it. I don't know if you've got things you'd like to sort of add there, Laura. Uh, no, I think just to say that this was a real pleasure um, for me to meet, meet all these um, uh, amazing clinicians and researchers um, and it was it was just a, a very enjoyable process. Um, me and Jan, we were we were um, meeting on Zoom before COVID, long before COVID, and b- before that was a sort of common thing to do. And um, coordinating these meetings across d- different time zones, and and really a, gr- a great group to work with. Yes, it was. If, you, if people actually look at this paper and see the uh, authors, uh, it's a really a, a world global team. So I think this will really become a landmark. Uh, document and it's good to hear that you were both the early adopters of Zoom. Um, Laura, I, I might turn to you um, uh, and ask you in a more, more general way. We have seen um, significant increase in awareness of functional neurological disorders, in particular uh, motor FND. In what way do you see that functional communication, cough, swallow disorders differ or indeed share uh, or indeed share common features with the functional disorders that your paper outlines? Oh. I think that's an interesting question. I think in lots of ways, there are lots of similarities. I think these um, disorders of functional disorders of speech, communication, swallowing, they're they're actually very common. And I hadn't really appreciated just how common they are as primary presenting complaints to speech and language pathologists. And they're they're also common. I notice um, since doing this paper, particularly in patients that I see who have wider functional disorders, dissociative seizures, functional motor disorders, that actually comorbid speech and communication problems uh, alongside cognitive symptoms, which is one of my interests, are are very, very common. I think the other thing that is similar is that they are often modulated by attention so that they may be um, most severe when the the patient is very aware of their speech, when they're in a sort of situation of pressure or um, just when they're focusing attention on that process. I think in other areas, they differ a bit from the functional, sort of primary functional motor disorders and overlap a bit more with um, functional gastrointestinal and functional urinary symptoms, in that these are systems that are under a really complex combination of autonomic and voluntary motor control. Um, And I think think that's important in how we approach treatment and, and also just how we understand how these arise and some of the contributing pathologies that can um, that can trigger and sort of exacerbate these disorders. And, and so, Jan, um, you know, with your uh, speech pathology um, hat on you now, how, how do you think speech and language professionals should, should approach assessing a person with a potential communication or cough or swallow disorder? Um, and what, what do you think are some of the helpful clinical findings uh, that might help um, determine that the problem is actually a functional uh, disorder? I think it's an interesting question because I don't think we approach the assessment at the outset differently necessarily from the way we would with any other disorder. I think we draw really on a biopsychosocial perspective uh, for for all the disorders that, that we would look at and we take into account any predisposing vulnerabilities 
Uh, we certainly look at precipitating incidents and, where possible, of course, perpetuating factors. So I think we would do this for all disorders, but when we have, a, have clues that it's functional, we might investigate certain areas more deeply. So, of course, we would do a traditional case history, medical history, and um, we're wanting to know when it began, how it began, what was happening at the time. I think it's really important to look at who else they've seen before we see them and what kind of investigations have been carried out, what was found, and also the way it was explained to them uh, in the past about what their disorder is, because I think that can alter their own orientation and belief system about what their disorder is. It's also really helpful to ask what the family says about their symptoms. And these days, it's really good to know what they've gleaned from Wikipedia or social media. Mm -hmm. I'm often really quite shocked at what I see on social media about being said about some of the um, functional symptoms, which is something we need to attend to, I think. So... I think, too, the other thing that's really helpful is to look at their attitudes and their beliefs about their symptoms and take that into account in how they approach coming to therapy and talking about what's been going on in their lives. Now, traditionally, I think with functional disorders, we would always have inquired deeply about emotionally stressful events or psychologically demanding incidents that we could have expected or anticipated would have been associated with onset. But I actually think we've now become more aware that functional symptoms can certainly arise after rather more innocuous life situations such as an upper respiratory tract infection, an accident or an injury implicating the part of the body but not involving those structures directly, um, mm. maybe a surgical intervention, um, and they may not even recall anything of psychological or emotional significance. But it, on, based on the positive clinical signs, you can still say this is a functional disorder. So what are some of them? Well, I think some of the key ones, I'll try not to talk too much here, but some of them are that it is a sudden loss of volitional control over the initiation and maintenance of movements or normal speech, voice or swallowing. It's usually, usually not gradual. There's usually a marked um, variability in the way the symptoms present. They often come and go, they change under different circumstances, which we might not see so much with um, a neurological disorder. And they certainly alter with figures from home, work, authority figures, etc. I think the other thing is we notice that they are rather, the symptoms are rather incongruous in their presentation when compared with other disorders of structural etiology. And you will often see a person with very exaggerated or effortful and extraneous tongue, lip, jaw, bodily movements as they um, try to, to speak, articulate, maintain their fluency. And I guess one of the other key things is that we have to be able to uh, demonstrate reversibility of symptoms. And some of the tasks that we use for that are what we call pre-verbal or playful or non-verbal sounds, such as a cough, grunt, laugh, 
cry. <laughs> and because those sounds are not often associated with speech, we can often determine, right, the voice is working, the vocal folds are working. We then might look at spontaneous activities and look at greetings or rehearsed and well-learnt automatic sequences, such as counting and days of the week, which someone with a functional communication disorder can often do, but they can't then talk in a conversational voice um, with more um, propositional language. So perhaps the last one of the last things I would suggest is we can introduce something like the Lombard effect, which is that we might speak um, at the same time as the person or play loud music in their ears while they're attempting to speak. And very often this interrupts the auditory feedback loop and it actually decommissions the level of inhibition so the person starts to speak normally. I might ask you, uh, your, your paper also mentioned some of the more specific syndromes or specific symptoms. And I might put this question to both um, you, Jan, and also to Laura. You know, do we see specific presentations and specific sim- sets of symptoms or syndromes that may be uh, picked up by the speech pathologist or the neurologist or the psychiatrist? Well, I I think well, we talked with the consensus team about this and most of the speech pathologists said that their referrals usually came not from so much from neurology and psychiatry but from otolaryngology, respiratory medicine and gastroenterology. You know, for, for cough it would be respiratory and for swallowing problems and globus it would be from gastroenterology and ENTs for the voice. I'm not sure that speech pathologists would have been quite so sensitive to functional cognitive disorders. I don't know what you think about that, Laura, Um, some of the language problems perhaps, but what do you think about the cognitive disorders? So I I commonly see people with functional cognitive disorders who complain quite prominently of uh, word-finding difficulties. I don't think they would necessarily present to um, speech pathologists, but my feeling is that the patients that you see in speech pathology who have kind of primarily speech communication, functional speech and communication disorders, a lot of them will have quite quite prominent yeah. cognitive difficulties as well. So poor concentration, just as a kind of function of the, the sort of amount of attention and energy it consumes having these symptoms. My world as a, as a neurologist, I've certainly seen patients with um, you know, attentional memory disorders. And, and you know, I've, I've seen an extreme of, and I think I mentioned this to you before, Janet, someone with mirror writing and um, various unusual um, presentations. And then we've also mentioned things like foreign accent syndromes. There, there probably are discrete syndromes out there, but it's, it's interesting to hear about how some of these patients get referred. And, and most of our listeners, of course, will be neurologists. So we want our neurology colleagues and our psychiatry colleagues to you know, consider these and maybe refer to a, a speech and language professional. Laura, I might just, um, uh, just in the interest of time, just ask you your thoughts about you know, some of the general principles that speech and language professionals or, or clinician, other clinicians should be applying to patients with functional disorders. And so I think this is an area which is probably quite similar to how we manage dissociative seizures and functional motor disorders is that um, so the first thing is getting the diagnosis made and getting it clearly communicated to the patient and a 
a really clear explanation um, about what's going on. And that's, I think, often quite an organic process that you do as part of your diagnostic assessment. And then moving on from that, or kind of as part of that, and, and I'll, I'll defer to Jan a bit here, but I think often in these disorders, what we want to do is um, find ways of kind of grasping hold of sort of areas that we can manage. So get, getting people to perhaps to cough, if they're having a problem making a sound, cough. So it's a very brief, um, automatic, non-challenging um, activities that can sort of demonstrate that there's some movement that there's some flexibility and the, the symptom isn't present all the time um, and then trying the next principle is kind of trying to generalize them i suppose as a psychiatrist I'm, I'm also looking to treat any comorbidities and i think these are quite socially disabling conditions i think people can have problems with social anxiety things about speaking and eating in public which um, might have an, another kind of more cognitive behavioral therapy or behavioral therapy approach some patients obviously might be depressed as well and it's not perhaps the primary cause of their symptoms it, it doesn't make things any better and treating that can be can be helpful as well so so I think taking a broad uh, a broad look treating any um, you know also physical things if people have got reflux that can be unhelpful um, psychiatric comorbidities um, and then the speech language pathologists are the, are the experts at um, you know sort of trying to modify some of the behaviours and, and habitual movements that might be inhibiting normal normal speech and communication. And of course, the, the, the actual paper itself, and I'll point out, is very comprehensive. And I think um, a lot of speech speech and language professionals will find that very useful. But but Jan, just to finish um, um, with, with you, um, um, would you add, add any more? I mean, you, you do list some very specific um, recommendations, but would you add any more advice in terms of specific and targeted uh, treatments for speech uh, pathologists um, in, in, in managing these disorders? Well, I think um, the principles that Laura just um, outlined are very common across all the symptom groups. But if I think, too, if, if we look at something like um, a functional voice disorder or speech disorder, once we've actually established that the person can get normal phonation, uh, which we often do with playful activities or non-verbal activities, as I mentioned before, and take it into automatic and well-learned sequences, that the more uh, challenging task then is to get it into conversational speech. And I think this is where we start to see um, the very important role of counselling by the speech pathologist or in collaboration with another mental health worker if there is a real reticence to talk about certain topics or to talk in front of or use the voice in front of certain people or in certain contexts. For instance, we sometimes see a school teacher who might have had a functional voice disorder and we know that it's do with the fact that they just can no longer face a classroom where the, where the kids just will not cooperate or behave and, and are really undermining their authority, but where they also might not get the support of the school headmaster or school principal. And quite a lot of the work is not just in getting the voice back, but taking the voice out of the clinical setting into the workplace and generalising it with people um, in authority where there's a hierarchical difference or say like a classroom or for an opera singer getting back um, under the conductor's baton of somebody who's a big bully 
um, they can actually have quite severe anticipatory stress going back into the work environment and holding on to their normalised voice or normalised speech or fluency. And here I think it's really good to be able to work with a clinical psychologist on managing uh, things like what are the triggers that might promote a setback with their voice or speech and how they cope with higher levels of stress. I mean, we, we saw this in wartime when um, soldiers often had to go back into the battlefield. And as people like um, Rivers, you know, the famous psychiatrist said, it was not that they were so much afraid of fighting. It was often that they felt the futility of going back where they felt that they were powerless, powerless with the hierarchy, powerless to operate effectively. So I think a lot of our work as a speech pathologist is helping support the person take their voice, their speech, their swallowing back into their normal context, their family life, their social life. What do you think about that, Laura? Would you agree that that's one of the big issues? Yes, yes, I, I agree. I think um, generalisation of these activities and, and kind of looking at the context and, and seeing if there are things that we can do there. Um, and, and I think uh, just also to say, I think speech pathologists, speech and language therapists, I, I'm just really struck by how skilled they are at this sort of thing because they, they do it all the time. And I think part of what we wanted to do with this paper was to feel that we could sort of empower speech and language therapists who are perhaps not not just so comfortable and don't feel as supported as in treating functional disorders to kind of use the skills that they already have um, in assessing people's sort of social setup and and they're you know doing really um, uh, they're absolute wizards at <laughs> looking at language and the upper airway and the swallow and um, and yeah so so I hope that that this paper will help to you know get people getting their teeth into these disorders a wee bit more. Yeah, and I guess this is a starting point. The podcast here is a starting point for that. And um, hopefully our listeners will, will then go and, and, and get that extra advice. And judging from our, our the various responses we've received to the journal, this has been a very popular area. And, and I think we need more broadly um, to have more um, professionals like speech pathologists uh, uh, contribute to, to the neurology and psychiatry literature, because as you say, Laura, they are experts in this area. Um, so look, that just uh, we could we could talk more and more about this, but um, we probably have to wrap it up there. Uh, I'd ask all our listeners to please check out the paper online, which is there freely available. And uh, for now, just want to thank uh, guests, uh, Dr. Jan Baker and Dr. Laura McWherther for contributing to the podcast, and hope that you'll all uh, listen again real soon. Thanks and goodbye. Thank you.